It is so good to be with you this morning. Our, um, our pastor, uh, many of you know he is out on uh, vacation this week, and uh, his family uh, texted me this morning. They're in West Florida. They're in my own stomping grounds, and uh, they're having a good time to be back uh, later this week. And so uh, we encourage you to pray for them, uh, to encourage them. We want to uh, make you aware of something regarding pastor uh, so that you can be on guard in, in a sense of prayer. Um, our pastor over the summer, many of you know that for uh, a really long time, he's had um, some difficulty with his vision and, and eyesight and different things. Over the summer, he's got an opportunity to have a couple of procedures done on his eyes. And it, Lord willing, what we're anticipating is he will be restored uh, completely with his vision through these procedures. And so we want to pray and ask the Lord uh, to really help him through the summer. Um, the recovery times aren't, you know, but just a couple of days, um, but it can be traumatic when people are dealing with your eyes. And so uh, we want to ask the Lord to do uh, a really miraculous work there. We also want to make you aware, if you did not know, uh, Pastor Darren, who is next door this morning, uh, his older brother passed away this last week. Uh, he has had cancer for the last few years. He was a Marine uh, for much of his life. And... Um, uh, Pastor Darren was able to lead him to the Lord here in the past few weeks. And so as grateful as we are for that, uh, we're brokenhearted for our brother. And uh, we want to pray for him and Miss Mandy, their whole family, as they, uh, they head up uh, uh, on Tuesday morning for the funeral. Um, so please, uh, if you can, uh, remember them in your prayers. Father, this morning as we open your word, we just want to lift up our brothers to you that through this summer are just going to be going through uh, a little bit of stuff. And Father, we want to pray that the Holy Spirit will surround them with the comfort of God. We want to pray for peace for Pastor Darren's family, that uh, Lord, through this tragedy that Jesus would be elevated, that many souls would come into the kingdom as a result of this. But Lord, would you just comfort this family and protect them as they travel from all over the country? We want to pray for our pastor today that, Lord, you would restore him, Lord, even through this week, that he'll be fully rested and restored. We want to ask you, Lord, as he goes into the summer, we want to pray that you will lessen any levels of anxiety that he may have going into these surgeries, that you'll give his physicians wisdom and precision and the highest level of intelligence and understanding about his condition. And Father, we just pray for a miraculous result. We pray for the, for the will of God to be done at the highest level, God. And we trust you with him, and we trust you with ourselves and with all that will be done in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen and amen. Well, it is um, it's so good to be with you here this morning, and uh, it's an honor to fill this pulpit, uh, as you can imagine. If you got your Bibles or your notes, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in the 11th and 12th uh, chapters this morning. Uh, but before we get into the reading of the text, uh, I kind of want to give you a little bit of a backdrop. I want to I give you a little bit of context so you understand what's going on as we read what, what we're going to read. The book of Hebrews is a letter that was written to Jewish Christian people, okay? The book was written about 40 years after Jesus had gone to the cross and he had risen from the dead. It was written between 30 and 40 years later. We don't know exactly who the author is, uh, but it is a part of the canonized scripture, and so we trust that it is the inspired word of God. Um, the book of Hebrews speaks specifically to Christians who are Jewish. In other words, they have uh, been born as Jews. They were in the, uh, the system of Judaism. And the author, what he's trying to do is he's trying to help them understand the correlation between the Old Testament, the men and women of God in the Old Testament, the prophets, uh, the systems of the Old Testament. And he's trying to remind them that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things. He's trying to remind them that uh, there were high priests in the Old Testament, but there's no longer any need for a high priest now because Jesus is the ultimate high priest. Uh, there was a sacrificial system in the Old Testament, but there's no longer a need for a sacrificial system because Jesus, the Lamb of God, is the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. The reason that he's writing... Uh, this letter to the Jewish Christians is because even though they live in a very different place away from Rome, most of the world is under the domain of Roman control. 
And during this time, there was a, a dictator. His name is Nero. And if you've ever studied uh, history on that side of the world, uh, you understand that Nero was a, a, just a vile dictator. He is often associated with the spirit of Antichrist because of his hatred uh, for Christians. Uh, Nero was the guy that would uh, feed uh, Christians to wild animals in arenas, but not just that. Uh, Nero was the kind of guy that would throw wild dinner parties, and he would have people from all over the nations uh, come uh, to his compound, and they would host a dinner party at night. But as a part of the entertainment, they would bring in Christians. They would strip them of their clothing and tie raw meat around their ankles, and they would set them off and release his wild beasts to go and to kill them, to destroy them as a, as a source of entertainment. He would take Christians and he would uh, hoist them up on, on poles and he would wrap them in linens and set them on fire so that they could be like a nightlight to his dinner party guest. I mean, he was a vile, wicked, antichrist type of man, this Nero. And the reason that the author is writing this book to the Jewish Christians is because many of the Jewish Christians were not... The Jews were not under the severe level of persecution that the Christians were under. So as you can imagine, a lot of the Jewish people in their mind, they thought, well, if we just go back to the old system, maybe we can preserve our lives. If we go back to the old system, maybe persecution won't hit us quite as severely. And so the, the letter of the Hebrews is all about reminding the Jewish Christians Jesus did not come to do away with the Old Testament, but he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And if you turn back to Judaism, that is turning away from the Christ, the Messiah, the one that you've been waiting for. And so uh, all throughout uh, Hebrews, you see this imagery, there's a lot of symbolism, but it is all trying to help people understand how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Now, in Hebrews 11, what we have is uh, this very extended portion of Scripture where uh, the writer is talking about great men and women of faith, and he's talking about their great exploits. He's talking about promises that God had given them. He's talking about difficulties that some of them persevered through. He's talking about all these kind of things. And when we pick up in verse 32 of chapter 11, this is what the author writes. He says, I do not have the time to tell about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Japheth, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. They shut the mouths of lions, they quenched fury of the flames, and they escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign enemies. Even their women received back their dead, raised to life again. And so he's talking about these great men and women of faith. And then all of a sudden, on a dime, the conversation is totally flipped the other direction. You ever been in a conversation and somebody's telling you how amazing you are or how great your outfit looks, and then all of a sudden... They smack you with something you really just didn't want to hear. This is exactly what's unfolding in the book of Hebrews. You're so inspired for the first 30 or so verses, and you're like, yes, we can take the world. And then all of a sudden, in a split second, everything changes. And the writer says this. He says, but then there were those who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even greater resurrection. Some of them faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to, get to death by stoning. They were sawed in half. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated because the world was not worthy of them. What an epitaph is that. They wandered in the deserts and the mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all committed for their faith, Yet none of them received what had been promised in their life since God had something better. What you find in this fantastic, fascinating portion of Scripture is you have a lot of themes going on. You have themes about difficulty and faith and rising above and promises fulfilled and promises not fulfilled. 
But if you look closely enough, there is another theme that underlines all of this conversation about people and how well they live this life. And the, the underlying theme of it all is this, is that though those people lived well and they finished their lives well, they were not only focused on this life, but they were focused on the life to come. It speaks of Moses and how he resented the treasures of Egypt because there was something greater that waited for him. It speaks of Abraham and says, though Abraham went out and he was faithful and he went to a new land that, that no one knew anything about, he went out blinded to a new land. That is not really the land that he was looking for. The Bible says there was a country that he was looking for that was far greater than that. And so all throughout littered in the scripture, which you see, is this overwhelming, again and again, reoccurring theme that though these people were faithful in this life, that this was not the life that they were ultimately focused on. You know, it's amazing. We have so many, so many incredible promises from the Lord all throughout Scripture. We have promises that, that he has sent us the comforter of the Holy Spirit. We have promises that, that God has purpose for every person's life. God offers us protection. God offers us blessing. He offers us all of these good things. But can I tell you, there's another side of promises that God gives to us in these scriptures that we just don't get very excited about, right? You never see someone preach from the scripture where Jesus confirms. He says, I'm telling you now as a guarantee, you will go through trials and tribulation in your life. There's never been a pastor that preaches that and they go, whoa, can't wait. You never get that. It's not exciting. It's not fulfilling. It doesn't stir you or inspire you, but yet it's a promise that God makes. That not only will you have trial and tribulation, but temptation is coming. And not only temptation, but testing, and testing from the very hand of God. And so there are these sets of promises that we have. It's like this weird dichotomy of this, this understanding that we live in a world where there is going to be blessing and there is going to be failure and there is going to be triumph and there is going to be tragedy and God plops us right in the middle of it to figure out how to live through it. Now we all go through difficulty. We all know this, okay? Difficulty, that's not um, any surprise to anyone. Most of us would probably look and say, well, I live in a state of difficulty, okay? Uh, but difficulty comes from a lot of different places. You know, obviously, uh, there is difficulty that comes from the enemy. You know, we see in Job's life and in, and in Paul's life, Paul said that uh, uh, there was a messenger from Satan that attacked me, and he would call it a thorn in the flesh. Um, we have this understanding that we have a spiritual opposition, that we are in the midst of a spiritual war, and that we come under attack. Job, in his life, lost everything that he owned, Yet the Bible describes him as an upright and righteous man, right? It's the old question. Why, why do bad things happen to good people, right? And you see this littered throughout all the scripture. As a matter of fact, it almost seems that the most righteous of people come under the greatest level of spiritual attack. It's really a fascinating uh, paradox that we got here. So we know that there's spiritual opposition, but we also understand that there's some opposition that, that comes from within. We know that, that when you look at the life of David or you know, pretty much anybody in the Bible outside of Jesus, that many of our issues and many of our problems don't necessarily come from satanic attack. Most of our issues come from within. Now, we like to call them satanic attacks, right? But I need to help us understand that, that you know, if, if your credit score is bad, it's not an attack of the devil, okay? <laughs> Perhaps it's because we haven't made the best financial decisions. Does that make sense? Um, if you go to a wedding and you decide to have a glass of wine and celebration and you get in your car and you get pulled over and you get a DUI, that's not because the devil inspired this police officer, okay? <laughs> this is just simply poor decision-making, okay? And so we've got to come to a place where we understand that sometimes opposition is our own fault. Understand that? Uh, I think anytime we're dealing with difficulty, we've got to deal with difficulty and honesty. 
Because if we don't deal with difficulty and honesty, we tend to repeat that same difficulty time and time again. So uh, we know that we got satanic attack. We know that we have attack that really comes from within. The Bible says that sin is birthed out of the, the desires of our own heart. But we also know that, that we have, you know, attacks that come from other people. We got family or friends or coworkers or, or whomever. Um, we know that sometimes attacks are, are come from those realms. Real quickly, I just want to say this. This is just a real side note kind of thing. Um, you, uh, we need to understand that we as individuals have control over whom we let influence our lives. At the deepest level where we are most vulnerable and we are able to be hurt the greatest, you understand that a person has to be pretty close to you to be able to wound you that deeply. The great thing about the free will that God has given man and women is that we are able to protect ourselves and insulate ourselves from people that will continuously and repetitively hurt us unapologetically and unrepentantly, okay? And so we need to use wisdom as to whom we let, uh, you know, close into our lives. Um, I'll never forget... Um, when I was a new Christian, the Lord spoke to me so clearly uh, through an accident that I had and uh, about this very thing about letting people in, whom to let in and whom not to let in. I was um, a new Christian. I had just, I was only 19. I left all my friends uh, behind because um, they definitely were not uh, pursuing Christ and uh, I virtually had no friends. And uh, so I remember there was this guy at our church, his name was Marco and man, I had just heard this dude, this guy was like a legend, okay? He was like the John the Baptist of the 20th century. And uh, you know, people were like, dude, he doesn't even watch TV. He just prays and reads his Bible. That's all he does, you know? And I was just like, this is incredible. I need a friend like this, you know? And so um, I got the courage one day, and I went up to him. And I said, man, I'd love, to, I'd love to spend some time with you and hang out. And I thought, you know, we'd go get coffee or eat some wings or something like that. Um, but he comes over, and he goes, man, I, I would love to do that. Uh, he says, would you like to go surfing with me? And I said, uh, we, I mean, I'd love to. We lived in Florida, and uh, I just told him, I said, I, I don't know how to surf, but I'd be glad to go with you. He said, oh, it's fine. I don't know how to surf either. And, and that is when I should have known. You know? um, so we decided that we were going to uh, go surf uh, on, on the Gulf Coast, and we got out there, and the Gulf Coast is not like the West Coast, okay? There aren't massive waves. It's not like Malibu. Sometimes there are waves, but oftentimes it's just flat. And uh, we got out there, and he just happened, somebody gave him a surfboard or something like that, and so we get out there, and we're trying for an hour and a half, and we're, we're getting nowhere, right? There's no motion to the ocean, so we're just like, we're dead in the water, basically, and uh, uh, so finally, he says, you know what, I'm going to give it one more shot, and then, you know, if I don't get it, we're going to leave, and I'm like, that's fine, you know, and so uh, he goes to get on the board, and I'm standing kind of in front of him, and um, I'm not sure if you've ever seen an object that is buoyant, um, which means that it floats, and if you ever try to force it underwater, it's not going to stay underwater, right? So every surfboard ever created is created for buoyancy. It's to keep you on top of the water, not under it, so it's always going to rise to the surface. And so on his last attempt, he gets up on the surfboard, and he is standing on the surfboard. It's the first time, all day, in an hour and a half, it's the first time any of us are standing on the surfboard. And so I'm like, whoa, yeah, you're surfing. You know, he wasn't moving at all. He was just standing on the board. But I was like, he's surfing, you know. And so as he stands there, about three seconds into it, all of a sudden, the weight of his body began to push the surfboard underwater. And I'm thinking to myself, just real quickly, it's all happening so fast, I'm thinking, this isn't good. And as I stand in front of him, I begin to see him fall backwards, and the surfboard that was once submerged has now projected out of the water, and it hit me directly in my throat. Not making this, it didn't like ricochet, you know, I didn't pull like a matrix, like, ah, it was nothing like that. It hit me directly in the throat and it fell, it, just like that. And in the moment, I'm, I'm shocked, I, am I going to die? You know, I can't breathe, I can't speak, nothing, I'm, I'm making weird noises, 
It is just a really odd moment. And so, you know, a friend comes up out of the water, and he is, he is horrified at what he has just done to his new Christian brother. And um, so I look down, and there's blood just gushing down, you know, from, from my th- I still have a scar on my throat. I have to, like, shave around it, you know. And so blood is just gushing. He comes over. He's so petrified. He's so upset that he hurt me. He takes the salt water and throws it on my wound to... <laughs> to try to get the, the blood, you know, to go away. And then I'm thinking about sharks in the ocean. You know, it was just, it was ridiculous. And um, so he said, do you want to go? Um, I can't speak, so I'm doing sign language, yes. And so we decide to leave, and we go get in the car, and he, he's driving. He is just apologizing, just, I mean, he is so beside himself. He's just hurt me. And he leans over to me. He says, man, can I just pray for you? Can I, please just let me pray for you. I was like, man, absolutely, please please pray for me, and or of course, I couldn't say that, but I just kind of nodded, and he prayed for me, and it was great, and friendship lasted, and everything like that, but I felt so strongly in the, in the days to follow that the Lord spoke to me about friendship, and I felt like the Lord had spoke to me and said, listen, you're going to have people in your life that are close to you that are going to hurt you. It's inevitable. It, for every single one of us, if you ever get married, let me just go ahead and set you up. Your spouse is going to hurt you in a way that no one else can hurt you. Okay? It's just going to happen. And you know what? You're going to hurt your spouse in a way that no one can hurt them. It's just going to happen. And as we have friends and as we have outer realms of family, they are going to sometimes unintentionally, but sometimes intentionally, hurt us. And it's unfortunate, but it is inevitable, and it's going to happen. And I, I remember the Lord speaking to me about this. And he said this, listen, whomever you choose to surround yourself with, when they hurt you, make sure you surround yourselves with people that will ask for your forgiveness, admit what they've done wrong, and offer to pray for you. And I thought, Lord, that is so profound. For a young man to have a revelation like that was absolutely life-changing for me. And it's changed my life ever since that time. And so I would just say to us that sometimes opposition comes from places that maybe we don't expect it from people that we really did not expect it to come from. But with the free will that God has given us, you have what we call self-preservation. You can preserve yourself by just setting people at somewhat of a distance if they repeatedly, uh, repeatedly hurt you time and time again. So it's important to understand sometimes attack comes from outside, sometimes it comes from within, but sometimes, sometimes our difficulty comes from above. Sometimes our difficulty comes from the Father himself. The Lord says over and over again in Scripture that God will never tempt you but God most definitely will test you. Even with Abraham, as he takes Isaac, one of the most profound three-word sentences and verses in the entire Bible says God tested Abraham. And over and over again throughout the New Testament, we see this theme of God himself testing us to shape us and to mold us. And though it's frustrating sometimes, and though it's irritating, and sometimes we don't know if we're under attack or being tested or being tempted or if this is a truth. Sometimes we don't know what it is. It's a great mystery to us. But what we are reassured of in Scripture over and over again is that regardless of what happens in your life and regardless of what happens in my life, it's a hard truth to swallow. But everything that happens is filtered through the fingers of the Father. Everything that happens is somehow I don't understand it, I don't get it, the human nature and the brokenness within me wants to rise up sometimes and say, Father, that's not right, but everything that God does is good, and he can be trusted, and everything that happens is filtered through the Father. And so it's important for us to understand that God is not going to, you know, A.W. Tozer said, God isn't going to take us to heaven wrapped in cellophane. God isn't going to take us to heaven as if we should be an ornament to hang on a Christmas tree. But God is going to put us through the fire, and he is going to drag us through the mud so that people that see us will understand that there is a difference between faith and feelings. Man, is that a message for our culture today? And listen to me say this. Faith looks in the face of difficulty and says, I do not understand, and I'm incredibly frustrated. I'm even angry and sad. But, Father, I choose to trust you in this moment 
because I trust that you're good and everything that you do is good. Have you ever considered that maybe God isn't always in the arena of subtracting problems from our lives, but maybe God is in the arena of adding power to our lives to overcome the difficulties? Have you ever considered that sometimes there are things in life that God allows for this one purpose? He wants us to conquer. He wants us to rise up. He wants the fortitude and the courage to be stirred within us. And so sometimes he allows things that we just do not understand. And so though we go through difficulty, I want to talk to us just for a, a few minutes about two different types of realities. We live in what we call the here and now. Every one of us have responsibilities. Every one of us have obligations. We all have bills. And if you don't, you are blessed and favored above all people. But most of us are living life here on this earth. And we are all promised that we will go through difficulties in this life. And what I'm about to talk about in a minute, I don't want to be misunderstood. Okay? I, I want my heart to, to come across. I want you to understand, understand my heart. I want to talk about something that is beyond this present reality. And when I begin to talk about that, I don't want anyone to interpret that as me saying that the, the issues or the difficulties or the tragedies of this life do not matter because they do matter. And they deeply and desperately matter to the Father. This is why he sent Jesus to identify with human nature so that Jesus on the other side of the cross could say, I understand. And let me tell you, one of the most difficult positions for a Christian to attain is to understand that he understands. It's to understand that Jesus understands, that he empathizes, that he sympathizes, that he gets where we are and he cares about our issues, he cares about our problems. And I emphatically agree that he does care about our problems, so much so that he surrounded us with a community of believers so that we could build each other up and encourage one another, so that we could process things with each other. Notice the Bible does say that we should go to God in confession, but in James 5, the Bible says that we should go to one another in confession. There is a reason that God wanted us together to have horizontal relationships and not just a vertical relationship. It's because he cares about everything that's going on in life. And so as I begin to talk about what I'm going to say, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I think that we need to be a people that pursue the goodness of God in this life. We need to be a people that pursue healing in this life. And may, may the Lord be ever increasing in his miraculous work in this house. We need to pursue healing. We need to pursue blessing. We need to pursue wisdom. We need to pursue help. We need to pursue all these things. But we cannot pursue the promises of this life at the expense of the promises of the life to come. We have been immersed in a culture and not just in a secular culture, but in a Christian culture that focuses so much on today that we have forgotten what tomorrow and the promises of tomorrow may possibly look like for us. And what happens is we get into a situation where we are so focused on putting out the fires and we're hoping God will do this and then we're hoping God will do that and then we jump back here and hope God will do this all the while missing that there is a greater sense of hope and reality that's way out there. We're not looking at because we're so focused on the immediate that we totally miss the eternal and we're not focused on these things. This is why Paul would write to the Colossians. Listen to what he says in chapter 3. He says, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not only the things of earth. And what I want to say to you today is I'm not talking about denying reality and, a, and denying heartache and denying opposition and denying hardship. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a denial of reality. I'm talking about a greater reality. 
I'm talking about not focusing just on this reality, but setting our sights not just on this, but also the reality to come. Because listen to me, friends, we have a lot to look forward to. We have so much to look forward to. We have the return of Jesus Christ to look forward to. Do you understand the gravity and the weight of that statement? The God that created all things is coming for us. He has not left us as orphans, but he is coming for us. If you're not familiar with, or maybe you haven't been in the church very long, or not familiar with, with some of the terminology I'm about to use, but understand that the rapture of the church is, is this thing that we believe where the Bible speaks to and says that there is coming a day and no one knows when it could be at any moment when Jesus himself will, will come in the clouds and he will hover over the planet and he will call those who have died in the faith, he will cause their physical bodies to meet him in the air to be reunited with their spirit bodies and they will be glorified in that moment. And those of us who remain in the faith that are still alive, in that moment, we will be caught up to meet him in the air. I've always wanted to fly. <laughs> and it's going to happen. Then, when we do that, it is going to be glorious. I remember, I grew up in the 80s. And the 80s perhaps was the greatest decade. Perhaps the greatest decade. Okay, listen, my wife was born in the 80s. Top Gun came out in the 80s. <laughs> Nintendo was invented. There was a lot of good that happened in the 80s. Their music's decent, too, okay? But the 80s, I remember growing up in the 80s and uh, going to church week in and week out with my parents till about the age of 10. And I remember there was like this gross fascination with the rapture of the church. There was like, I mean, I mean mania. If you grew up, if you were alive during the 80s and around the body of Christ, there was a fascination. I mean, it was almost too much, okay? But there was a fascination. People were writing books. People were predicting when Jesus would return, and they would say on September 22nd, you know, and they would give all this at 4.59 p.m., and, you know, it, it's so funny. Every time, like, they would be wrong because Jesus said no man knows the day or that. Anyway... Every time, they would come back and say, oh, it was a miscalculation. <laughs> Obviously, it, it was. But I remember there was this, this fascination, even into the 90s, we were, you know, the Christian community, they were, they were writing books about, you know, left behind and, and writing books about heaven and, and rapture of the church and all this. But let me tell you what, in the last 20 years, we have, we have really pushed away from that. Mainstream Christianity has, has barred back from the realities of heaven. And you know what we've started focusing on? This right here. We stop focusing so much on the promises to come because we're so caught up in the promises of right now. And I think we should pursue these. Don't misunderstand me. We need to pursue these, but not at the expense of those. It is coming a day where we are going to be reunited with the Lord. I remember when I was growing up, and like I said, I was, I was going to church. There was this fascination. And I would, I would sit in the back with my mom, and I would watch the pastor. And if he turned anywhere near the back part of the book, I was out, right? Because I didn't want to hear it. I was like, I don't know if I'm living right or not, but I don't want to get left. You know, they got marks of beast and people dying and asteroids, all this kind of crazy stuff. I don't want to hear about it. I would rather stick my hand, my head in the sand. And so I say, Mama, I got, I got to tell me, I go to the bathroom and I stay there the whole service or until she sent somebody to retreat me, you know? Um, and, and, and I remember it being such a fear for me. And I remember thinking about death through most of my life and thinking about how this was such a fear for me. But as I got older and I began to, to really understand the nature of the Christian life and I began to understand church history better, you know what I began to, to realize? I began to understand that the first Christians for the first couple of hundred years, they never viewed the rapture and they never viewed death as something to be feared. Never. They viewed it as a comfort for them. You know why? Because when Nero is breathing down your neck, what's the best thing that can happen? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And so when you begin to realize that the, the first Christians were never 
afraid of these kind of things. It was more of a sense of comfort. All of a sudden, the scriptures begin to make more sense to you. So in, in, in First and Second Thessalonians, where we get the doctrine of the rapture and, and the dead in Christ being raised and all this, where we get all this, Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, and this is what he says. He talks about the death of loved ones, and he says, and in this moment when the trumpet sounds, their bodies are going to be resurrected and all this, and this is how he ends it. He says this. He says, encourage one another with these words about death. Encourage. When's the last time? You were walking with somebody, and they were really going through frustration. And you looked at them, and you said, buddy, it's, it's not that big a deal. You're going to be dying soon. It's good. It's good. You're going to be fine. No, we don't, we don't do that. We don't act like that, and understandably, you know, why? But let me say this. Even when he was talking about the rapture of the church, he gets through this whole portion about us being caught up in the, in the air with the Lord, and this is what he says. He says, encourage one another with these words about the rapture. So all of a sudden, you have this, this total shift in mentality, for me at least, where my entire life, I had always been afraid to die, I'd always been afraid of the rapture, I'd always been afraid of all these things, and then when I read about the first Christians, I read, no, 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 they weren't afraid, they were longing. For them, it wasn't about escaping the present. Most of us just want to be raptured so we don't have to be left behind. That's why most of us want to be raptured. But let me say this, for them, it wasn't about escapism. It was about eagerness. It was about something out there is greater than what I see in this country. This land is not my home. And my home is longing for me and calling for me. And they encouraged one another with these words. And so my, my, the point of what I'm trying to say is, is simply this. In my life, I have the tendency to set things that I view most important as the priority. Blessing, financial blessing, uh, miracle signs, wonders. I have the tendency to set those as the greatest hope of my life. And I have secondary hopes of heaven. And all I'm saying is this, is that maybe, just maybe, I've got them backwards. And maybe my primary hope needs to be on heaven and my secondary hopes need to be the here and the now. And you know what's fascinating? This is what I believe. I believe it's fascinating that when we get our priorities aligned with the priorities of God, all of a sudden, those second priorities become a big deal, and they start popping. And so I think it's important for us to understand that, that there is a return of heaven that, that's coming soon. We also got to understand there are realities of heaven that, that are promised for us. Paul the Apostle, he says, listen, no eye has seen, no ear has heard. It's not even entered into the, to the mind of a human being, the good things that God has prepared for those who love him. You know who Paul was quoting when he wrote that? He was quoting the prophet Isaiah. Do you remember what happened with Isaiah? In the sixth chapter of Isaiah, the Bible says that Isaiah had an encounter with God and he saw the Lord and he saw the realities of heaven and he saw the train of the robe that filled the temple of God. He saw the glories of heaven. And after that encounter with God, Isaiah writes to the people to encourage them and says, you have no idea what's to come. And when you do, it's going to blow your mind. Paul takes a cue after going to the third heaven. And he says, you know what? The prophet was right. He didn't write those words in vain. There is something greater than what we could ever hope or imagine. Pastor Glenn and I are doing... Um, a master's program, and so we have to go out of town for about a week every, every few months, and we're out of town this, this week, and uh, one of the professors mentioned a story about an old English martyr. His name was John Bradford, and this is what he said. Back in the day, um, when, when a person would be martyred for their faith, they basically would, would uh, save like a sermon at for their final moments on the earth. This happened with Joan of Arc and, and several others. You can, you can read through history. But this guy said something so fascinating and so profound for us to get our minds around. Listen to what he said. As he's hanging on a crucifix, he says to the people, look at creation. Look at all of it. Like, look at the planet. Look at, look at nature, all that God has created. This is the world that God has created for his enemies. Imagine the world that he's created for his friends. Listen to me. 
You see what you see out here and how fascinating it is? I'm not sure if you've traveled much or been around the planet or ever watched National Geographic, okay? But that took about six days to create. Jesus said, I have been preparing a place for the last 2,000 years. What he is doing for us is beyond comprehension. And it awaits us on the other side of death. But let me just tell you this. Listen, if you, if you get discouraged, the next time you get, this is what I need to do when, when, I, when I'm walking through a season of discouragement, and it comes for every single one of us. But you know what Maybe the best thing for me to do? It's probably to break out my Bible and break open to that last book and look at Revelation 4, where it talks about the elevation of God in the throne room and the worship of the living creatures and, and camp out a little bit in Revelation 21 that talks about the new Jerusalem and all the good things that God is preparing. Revelation 22, where there's final victory for the saints. Maybe it's good for me to get my sights off of what's happening now and to set my sights on what's to come. Maybe that's one of the best things that I can do because the reality is that it's coming. It's not fictitious. It's not a fairy tale. It's not something that the human mind has contrived. This is a reality for the Christian believer, and I'm incredibly excited to see it. We get a reunion in heaven that I'm so excited about. I get to see my granddaddy who died when I was nine. I get to see people who have, have gone. You get to be reunited with saints from the past. I plan to spend a lot of time with C.S. Lewis. I plan to hang out with Jonah a little bit. I plan to be reunited with these people because what it is, though we live in the present, in the future, we're going to be reunited from the people from the past. It's not just about who lives here now and the people we know. It is going to be all of human history, past, present, and future. And then we have rewards from heaven. If you have not... Uh, had a chance to listen to Pastor's sermon about three or four weeks ago uh, on, the, on the crowns of the saints that we have the opportunity to gain in heaven as a reward, you need to do it. And I don't even know what the sermon's called. Just go listen to the last six weeks of sermons. It'll do you good, okay? And when you come across the crowns, just remember what I said. It's a good one, okay? It's a life-changing uh, sermon, and I, I, I encourage you to do that. But this is what my fear is. My fear is that so many of us, my, myself included, in, in the Christian community, we are so focused on right now that we forget the promises of the future. I was reading uh, a couple weeks ago uh, in a theology book about this, this tribe. The author is from a tribe called the uh, Akimbo tribe in, um, in South Africa. He was talking about how his people, he is a Christian now, but he was talking about how difficult it is to convert uh, people from within the tribe, because he said that the, the tribe, they have no concept of a future hope. All of their hope is tied to past ancestors. So anytime that they try to pray or they do a ceremony or anything like that, it's not about the hope of something to come. It's all about looking to the past and focusing on that. It's all about survival for today. There's never any hope for the future. And I'm afraid that though many of us are Christians and we ultimately, somewhere deep down, we believe these things, we don't necessarily live like we believe these things. And for us, that is such a tragic place. I can just imagine Jesus in heaven just saying, but I've given you so much hope. Why are you so in despair? Downcast, why is your soul like that? I have given you so much to look forward to and listen to me. This isn't just a theme that I just came up with and thought, man, this would be a really good thing to preach on. This would be really good. Friends, listen to me. This is scattered. This is littered all throughout the scriptures. Listen to the scriptures. I lift my eyes, O oh God, to you enthroned in the heavens. As my eyes grow weak, I look to the heavens. You who are discouraged, lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Nebuchadnezzar, even though he was pagan, when the Bible says that he said these very words, at the end of my insanity, I raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Even the lost, when they look to heaven, find some element of hope. Jesus, as he's going to the cross, the Bible says in the garden that he looks up and he begins to pray. Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church, as he is, be as he is being stoned to death, stoned are being pelted on him. The Bible says, full of the Holy Spirit, he lifted his eyes to heaven. Peter, one of the greatest apostles to ever live, he told us to look forward to the day of God. 
to look forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And listen to me, the second to the last verse of the entire Bible, the writer says this about Jesus, that Jesus testifies these things and he says this, surely I am coming soon. And the writer tags on the end, amen, come quickly, Lord Jesus. This isn't some new positive thinking seminar. This isn't something that I'm trying to excite people about that's going to fall apart. This is a reality that for all of human history, Abraham, all of human history, people have longed for a country that was not their own. They have longed for a world whose maker and architect was the Lord God himself. And so at the end of Hebrews, and I'm going to wrap up here. I know we're out of time. At the end of this, this, this really profound moment, at the end of Hebrews 11, the author makes a transition. He's talking about faith, and he's talking about successes, and then he begins to talk about failure, and he begins to talk about promises that weren't fulfilled. And then all of a sudden, he closes out this fantastic portion with a spoonful of encouragement. This is what he says. He says, therefore, since we're in a world that is laced with triumph and tragedy, because of this, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Let us therefore throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. In other words, fixing our eyes on heaven the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Can I tell you why this is so vitally important? It's not just for hope within ourselves. It is for them because it feeds our soul to, to feast on the realities of heaven. But can I tell you that it's, it's not just about you as an individual, but it's about every person who watches how you deal with this arena of reality right here. It's about every single person that witnesses that. Many of you know uh, a couple years ago we have a dear family in the church that lost uh, a child um, to disease, and um, we're just strong, strong as rocks through it all and testify of God's goodness. And a few weeks ago, um, I was having a conversation with, with my son, and I, I had permission to share all this. So. Um, I was having a conversation with my son, and we were talking about the mysteries of God. My, my son is bound to be a theologian, I'm afraid. Um, but just the mysteries of God, we were talking about death and life and children and, and abortion and all these things and trying to reconcile the mystery of God. Why does God allow some things and how do we, how do we deal with those things when he does, when we don't understand how, what is our response to God? We're dealing with all this stuff. And at the end of the conversation, it's almost like he had an epiphany. And he said, you know what? You're right. He said, I remember, I remember at her funeral, her daddy got up to speak. And he said, I don't remember everything that she said. He said, but I remember the last thing that he said. And he said, though we don't understand and though that we're heartbroken, though we are frustrated and we are unsure, we will not ask why. Because the Lord is good and all that he does is good. Listen to me. That father, whether he, he realized it or not, marked one of my children for all of his life. Why? Because in the midst of tragedy, he lifted his eyes from this. He lifted his eyes to hope of that. And he said, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Because though I don't understand, there will be a reunion. And though I struggle, there's going to be reconciliation. And though I'm frustrated and though I don't understand, Father, I choose to trust you. And listen to me say this. In the same way that my son was watching that father, people are watching you. 
and people are watching me. And a large part of the generations to come and the solidity of their faith will be the solidity of our faith in these moments. And so I just want to say to you today that I'm not naive and I've got issues and I've got problems. I can't, but I, I will say this, I cannot even begin to touch some of the tragedy that some of you in this room and the other auditorium have touched. I, I'm, I'm nowhere near that. I can't even begin to consider those things. But I will say this with great humility in my heart, that just because I haven't experienced severe tragedy yet in my life doesn't make what I'm saying any less valid or any less real. There is a reality that's beyond us. There is a hope that is beyond us. And I'll be the first one to tell you that setting your sights on heaven and remembering the realities of heaven, I'll be the first one to admit to you that's probably not going to fix your temporal problems. It's probably not going to pay your bills. It's probably not going to fix your marriage. It's probably not going to help your kids. But I'll tell you what it will do. It will fix your perspective on those problems. It will help you walk in a place where you understand, though I have to deal with all this and I have to work and I have to labor and I have to, I have to help fix things and bring restoration, though I have to live in this moment, I'm not living for this moment. I'm living for that moment. And if my attitude is to live for that moment, all this right here is going to align. All this right here is going to align. And so this morning I want to pray for you. I want to ask you to go ahead and stand with me. I apologize for going a little bit late today, but... I want to ask our ministry teams to go ahead and come to the front, and um, I just want to say to you today, listen, if you're here and you're not a Christian, by the way, and you want this hope, you know that this hope is void in your life, you can have that hope in a moment. Jesus came to die for all of us as sinners, all of us as sinners, and he is the great restorer and redeemer, the great savior. Any of these folks can help you pray if you want to do that. But as much as anything today, I just, I've been asking the Lord, I've been asking the Lord for a while. I said, Father, I just, I, I want hope to be instilled. I want courage to arise. I want, our, I, want our, I want our spines to be stiffened again, to be able to take on the day and to look ahead to the future. And so today, I just want, I, if, you, if you're dealing with difficulty or frustration or anything like that, these folks would love to pray with you about that, but I'm asking y'all to pray with them about a greater reality also. Not the denial of this reality, but a shifting of focus to a greater reality. And I believe the Lord will help us. Let me pray for you. Father, we love you this morning. So grateful for your word. Father, we thank you for the promises that are yes and amen. We thank you for the hope of heaven. And we would ask you to come today to your people. Lord, as we all struggle through this life, from triumph to tragedy, my prayer is that you would comfort us with the hope of heaven. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and quicken the hearts of those that are here that are so distraught and so discouraged and that you would give them visions and dreams of the reality that's to come, that you would help our hearts, Lord, as we travel as foreigners in this land, that you would help us, Lord, through it all. So God, will you bless your people this afternoon for this week? Will you go with them, Lord? Will you help us, Lord, to resonate to focus in, to settle into the realities that are to come. And we'll bless you in the name of your great son, Jesus. Amen, amen, and amen. Amen. The Lord bless you today. You're free to go. You're free to stay. You're free to come receive prayer or worship. We love you so much. We will see you next, next Sunday.